We have been going through Acts chapter 9. We've been looking at Saul's conversion. And in that time, we've been pointed to two different locations. The location of the encounter on the road to Damascus. Damascus, the place where he would be, carried into or led into, and then we are told of the place where he would be for three days, the place where he was healed, the place where he was confirmed in the faith and commissioned, namely the house of a man named Judas that we know was on the street called Straight which, by the way, that street still exists. As far as I know, there was never a monument or a movement to mark the spot on the road just outside of Damascus. Nor was there a steady stream of people coming to the house of Judas for healing. Roman Catholicism would be famous for marking places where they believed events took place, setting up churches or cathedrals in these locations. One prime example would be in Bethlehem at the Church of the Nativity. They would set up these different churches in these locations, and in many of these locations, they would have what are called relics. And these relics would serve as a drawing card to pull the people, Roman Catholics, who were on pilgrimage, which was seen as one of the sacraments at one time. And so there would be different relics in different cathedrals and in different uh, churches, and these people would then go on pilgrimage to see the different relics. Some people say, oh, yes, well, over here there's a leg bone from Peter. And some would say, I touched Peter's leg bone and I was healed. I thought that was kind of weird because it didn't do much for Peter. There are at least, in my last count, there there can be more than this. There, There are more than 20 places that say they have wood from the cross that Jesus was crucified on. And those who have taken to try to verify this have found that there were several different species. So it must have been a very unusual piece of wood. Now, to think that you could go to these places, that you would be more holy by going to these places, that you could even be healed by touching these inanimate objects, is nothing but superstition. Superstition is giving abilities to inanimate objects. I'm sure if I put a 15-foot stepladder here, there'd be a number of people who would walk around it And hardly anybody that would walk under it. Because, of course, that old superstition of walking under a ladder can bring bad luck. But, of course, the whole idea of luck is rooted in superstition. And it is not like a ladder is going to follow you the rest of your life and haunt you. 
profound movement of God had come upon Saul. His life had been changed 180 degrees. The Christ that he sought to rid the world of is now the Christ that he proclaims. We see in verse 19, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. In verse 20, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he was the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not the one who destroyed those who called upon this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose? so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. So a 180 degree change in his life. And we read in verse 19 that he spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. No doubt he spent time in that conversation with them, not only learning more of Christ and and sharing Christ and his experience with them, he would recount his conversion experience, and he would do this several times throughout the book of Acts. But again, after this, we do not read of anyone saying, let's get a caravan together and head for the place that he encountered Jesus. When, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we don't see every year a pilgrimage to Lazarus's tomb. When the first great awakening came to our country, to our continent, to these colonies, there were not caravans of people going to Northampton because this was a movement that spread throughout the colonies. But when we come to the revivalistic mentality that swept the nation some decades later, the revivals are now named by locations and confined by locations. In 1801, the Cane Ridge Revival, which, by the way, there's still thousands every year that pilgrimage to that cabin, that log cabin meeting house at Cane Ridge, Kentucky. On to the 1960s and you have the Azusa Street Revival in Southern California. To more current expressions of the Toronto Blessing or the Pensacola Revival or whatever they seem to have called it. To recently now we have Asbury College, a place where supposedly every three decades they have a revival. Now, I am not saying that God didn't do anything in these places. Don't get me wrong. I am certain in these places and time there were people converted. But what I am saying is that revivalism in our nation has led to a false notion that God's work of awakening have now become location-specific. Why is it that in the midst of this, of course, it got into the news media and, and got blown up, why is it that so many flock 
to Wilmore, Kentucky, to Asbury College. I've seen video after video of, of people singing, singing contemporary Christian music. There's an intensity amongst the performers. But once again, the notion is fostered that if you want to find God, you got to go to Wilmore. Location specific. Isn't it interesting? Pensacola, which had what they claimed to be a revival in 95, also said they had one in 97 in 2020 and now 2022. But if we look in Scripture, one of the greatest revivals ever took place happened in the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was a place that was full of Gentiles. There were no Jews in there. And yet here you have a Jewish prophet who was sent to these Gentiles. What did the Ninevites do for this awakening to happen? Absolutely nothing. What was it that brought, away, brought this awakening to take place? The word of God. Now we have a little bit of the message that Jonah had, but we don't have all of it, I'm sure. We come then to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. A time, again, of a great awakening. What brought that great awakening about? Well, if you read it, it's kind of funny because you've got a couple of the scribes that go in. The, the temple is being remodeled and, and, and fixed where it's broken down. What do we have? A couple of scribes, they look behind one of the partitions and they find scrolls. And they come and they tell. Uh, the, the, the announcement that they make is really sort of ironic and, and somewhat funny because they say, we have found the word of God in the house of the Lord. And the people stood for hours while the word of God was read to them. And they repented. And there was great movement of God in that time. And the other times when people returned to the Lord, it was the word of the Lord proclaimed. What happened to Saul? Well, there was a choir from Damascus that came out and they sang all these happy songs and it changed Paul's life. No. What happened? The word from the word. Christ revealed himself in words to Saul and gave him instruction on what he was to do. Christ brought him to himself with his word. I think of that time of Jesus with the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, in verse 20. The woman has desperately tried to change the topic in the midst of the conversation with Jesus because he was getting into her personal relationships 
which were with many men. So to change it, she says in verse 19 of chapter 20, uh, Sir, I, I perceive that you are a prophet. Verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. See her mentality? Worship has to be site-specific. It's either going to be on this mountain or it's going to be over here. Can't be anywhere else. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks, is seeking such to worship him. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The heart and the mind and truth is how they are to be worshipped. Isn't it interesting that when you look at the time of Pentecost that we saw here in the book of Acts, that mighty day of salvation, the day of the birth of the church, if you will, the New Testament church, that there were not annual returns to that house where the event took place. And it wasn't by method either. Yeah, if we just do these nine things, revival will happen. I can guarantee you that over the past month, there were quite a number who came to Wilmer, Kentucky, came to the chapel, observed what was going on, went back to their place and said, these are the things that we must do. Because they looked and they saw the things that were going on, so they said, these are the things that we must do. You see, methods make people think, this is how we get God. And that's not right. That's manipulation. And superstition. Which is secondarily an act of pride. If we do the right things, the way we think they, they are right, guess what? We will move God. We have that ability. We can move him. We can make him come down. All we have to do is check off the boxes. It's an act of pride. We did our part. Now it's up to God. But that's now it's not how it's to be. You know, methods not only can be superstitious, they can be idols. But what does God say? Well, turn to me, if you will, to Isaiah 57.
Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. If you notice with your new King James or regular King James, places in italics, it was added by the translators. I dwell in the high and holy with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isn't that interesting? There's no mention of place. Here is where God specially dwells. Certainly God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at the same time in the same amount. But with his people, as we've said on numerous occasions, he gives that special presence. And by it, he revives the spirit or soul of the humble and the spirit or soul of the contrite. Now, contrite is a word that's not used a whole lot anymore because... Why would you be contrite when there's so many people to blame for your problem? <laughs> but David, in his great psalm of repentance, said in Psalm 51 and verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Now what is then contrition? Contrition is this. It is remorse, regret, sorrow for one's sin. It is remorse, regret, or sorrow for one's sin. Not a feeling bad that you got caught. But the sorrow is from the fact that you sinned against a holy God. It's a work of God's grace in us. It's not of ourselves. Repentance is listed as a gift. It doesn't come from our self-flagellation from beating ourselves. Yeah, you can make yourself feel real bad if you want to, but that's not the view that's, that's here. In Matthew chapter 5, in verse 3, I don't think we can clear this up enough or enough times because it's been so covered with the the dust the dust of those who deceive but notice as we come to chapter 5 and verse 3 he said blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they 
shall inherit the earth. Notice he starts every one of those lines off with blessed. What does it mean? What does it mean to be in that blessed state? It means if you're blessed, if that, that, if that is connected to who you are and how you are, God has given you something that you cannot get by yourself. You're not going to find someone who says, man, I am so glad I got contrite. My contriteness saved me. It's not going to happen. I can show you a sadness that didn't lead to any goodness. Rich young ruler comes up to Jesus. He says, what one good thing must I do? First off, he thinks it's one good thing. That's all he needs. But it's one good thing, and what's follow? Must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Oh, yeah. Got that. I've done that ever since I was a child. All right. Go. Sell all you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. That boy went away sad, full of sorrow. But Christ in that revealed to this young man, you'll never be saved by pride. And that if there was to be a contrition, it would have to be a work of the Spirit of God in the person. What did, God, what did Christ show him in that? See, the young man thought, I can do all things. I've kept the law ever since I was a child. Okay, well, here's, here's a section of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Sell all you have. Give to the poor. Come follow me. I can't do that. You haven't kept the law. Notice what God says in Isaiah 57 and verse 15. He says of himself that he is the high and lofty one. Means he's high above the earth, above all nations. It's not a reference to altitude. It's a reference to glory and power. Higher than the heavens. Higher than the angels. The knowledge of his being and perfections are too wonderful for us to grasp. Whose thoughts are too high for theirs. And whose love is at such a height that their love could never begin to, to grasp or fathom, fathom or obtain. And he says this in order to give a proper sense of the awe and reverence that we should have and the close attention we should give to what he says. For thus says the high and lofty one. No one else can get, take that title. Who inhabits 
eternity, who is from everlasting to everlasting, who only has immortality, whose name is holy. That is his nature, originally and essentially holy. Therefore, the source of holiness. He does not say, and this is important, he does not say a God who has holiness. He says he is holy. You see, holiness would not exist without God. He is the author of holiness. He is that which you look to for holiness. He is what you could define as holiness. And this God he says he is holiness and he says I dwell in the holy. Again place being an added word. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the holy angels together And I dwell with him also that is of a contrite heart and humble spirit. Those who are broken under a sense of sin, not in a legal self-contrived way, as Paul would say, there's a repentance unto life and there's a repentance unto death. The temporary repentance is, well, I'm really sorry for what I did. I messed up. I think there's a man in South Carolina who probably is sorry for what he did. But that's not true repentance. No, this is sorrow in an evangelical, a saving way. Those who are humbled under a sense of their sin and unworthiness. But not in a hopeless way. It's never a case where God says, you are a terrible Stinking sinner, stay down there. But the, the idea is to show us where we are so he can bring us up. Not that we see things are hopeless, but that we see our only hope is in Christ. And so it's not in a helpless way, but in a way that causes them to look to Christ. To see the righteousness of Christ, to be the source of their acceptance to God the source of their justification before God, who ascribed the whole of their salvation to Christ alone. These are they with whom God dwells by his spirit and grace or in a gracious way or manner by shedding abroad his love in their hearts, which he usually does by the common means of grace resulting in the reviving of the spirit of the humble and the heart of the contrite. See, here's the thing. What has he just told us? I dwell with the spirit of the humble and the heart of the contrite. The humble and the contrite. The humble and the contrite. Keep that in mind because... What we have today is, and have had all through the generations, is those who think they need something more than the normal. The common means of grace for them are not enough. 
They must have more. That's not contriteness. That's not humility. That's a sense of entitlement that will send people to hell. What are the common means? What's well, the preaching of the word? The ordinances of the church, the baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer. These are the common means of grace, but we've got so many running around saying, well, that's good for you, but it's not enough for me. Well, if it's not enough for you, you've got something wrong because this is what God has said. I will reach you with. These are the means, that is, these are the channels by which my grace flows to you. And yet people will say, oh, I, I saw several coming out of Asbury College saying, well, I came here because I needed more. Well, where were you that you weren't getting enough? What was it that you weren't getting enough of? You know, we could set up bungee jumping off the top of the, the bell tower here. I said, well, boy, did I have a great time. We, well, I, I bungee jumped four times. Next week, I'm going back for five. And you see, that's the problem. Whenever you go beyond the means of God's word, what God has prescribed, now you've got to keep adding all these man-made things. Oh, we've got bungee jumping. Next week, can we have the helicopter rides? Yeah, you can. Okay, we'll go with that. Preaching of the word, the ordinances, prayer. If someone says they need more, they are under a sense of special entitlement. And they open themselves up to all kinds of deception. Everything we do in worship is what God has commanded to do. There's no need to go anywhere else. There's no need to go to Wilmer, Kentucky. What they do there? Well, they sang and they pray. Guess what? We did that here. And occasionally, from what I understand, there was even some kind of preaching that went on, but we don't know what kind it was. But we say the word of God is delivered here. Now, what do they have that we didn't have? They had intensity. Ah. So the just shall live by intensity. Every time we gather for worship, there is that opportunity that God will revive and restore our souls. The one positive thing that maybe we can take from what has been going on in these places is the fact that there is a hunger. There seems to be this hunger, but friends, you don't feed starving people marshmallows. The word of God is milk and meat. And that is, how do we live? By every word from the Lord. There are, will always be these, quote, 
fantastical places where people say, God has visited us in such a way. How do you know? Well, we felt an intensity. So now we're saved by feeling instead of faith. That is wrong as well. God's word never lies to us. Our feelings will. And so therefore, the safest place for anyone to be is where the word of God is given. Because that's where God is. Let's stand together for prayer.